The Food and Drug Administration has proposed severely restricting the amount of artificial trans fats that can be included in foods sold in the United States, a step that some experts see as a first move toward a new era of food regulation focused on long-term health effects. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Kelly Brownell, Dean of the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Dr. Brownell has co-authored a perspective article on the trans fat ban and what it may mean for the future. Dr. Brownell, can you begin by giving us a brief history of artificial trans fats? What's the mechanism of their adverse effects? When did it first come under scrutiny? And just how bad are they for us? Trans fats got introduced into the food supply back in the early 1900s by the Procter & Gamble company with the product Crisco, but have been in wide use in the food supply in years since, especially in recent years. These are artificial substances that are added to food, primarily because they provide long shelf life for products like pastries and margarines and things like that, but they also have some taste benefits that the industry has enjoyed. The problem is that they have an adverse effect on cholesterol, LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol in particular, and have been shown quite conclusively to raise risk for heart disease. There's really no need for them in the food supply because the companies can use alternatives. So the move by the FDA, I think, is very important in its own right by helping get rid of trans fats, but of course has long-term implications for other parts of the food supply as well. The graph in your article nonetheless shows that the amount of trans fats in the food supply has been decreasing for some time. So is the FDA's proposed action actually necessary at this stage? The decrease is probably due to several things. One is the fact that the public knows more about trans fats than they did before. And then also the government put in the requirement to label trans fats several years ago. And as a consequence, consumers began seeing these labels and recognizing that trans fats were something to avoid. And a number of the companies preemptively took out trans fats because they thought that it would decrease sales if consumers found out about this. I think those are the primary reasons why the use in the food supply has declined. But any use at all is going to lead to risk for disease. And we can't just wait for this to decline to zero in its own right, because it probably never would. So the government's action, I think, is quite warranted. Worldwide, the first ban on partially hydrogenated oils was instituted by Denmark in 2003. Are researchers beginning to study the impact of that ban? It's a little hard to know what the long-term consequences of these changes will be, because the fats affect chronic disease, you know, heart disease and cancer and things that take many, many years to develop in people. So it's unlikely that a ban put in a short period of time, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago even, would start to show up in disease rates. So it's a little too early to know, but all the estimates are that you could save a lot of lives in the U.S. and elsewhere by having trans fat bans put in place. Looking at other kinds of reactions, New York City and California banned these fats from restaurant foods quite some time ago. What have the reactions been from restaurants, from their patrons? How have those laws played out? There's a very interesting parallel with smoking. When New York City and other places wanted to ban smoking in public places like restaurants, the tobacco industry rallied against this and said that this would adversely affect business in places like restaurants and bars. Well, it turned out to have a positive effect on business in those places. And that same sort of phenomenon is playing out here where the restaurant industry claimed 
when New York City, which was the first place in the U.S. to get rid of the trans fats, put their regulation into place, the industry said that consumers wouldn't like the food as well, that it would decrease the number of choices in the restaurants, and that it would increase price. Well, it turned out none of those things happened, and the trans fat ban went into place. There hasn't really been any appreciable change as a consequence of it in the marketplace. So it seemed like the industry at that point was crying foul because they're easily substituted fats. You suggest in your article that the FDA restrictions mark a watershed for food regulation in the United States, moving away from a focus on short-term risks such as contamination with pathogens to longer-term risks. Do you think that that's an expansion that the FDA is looking for and one that the U.S. public is likely to accept? This, I think, really does represent a major change in thinking. As you mentioned, we give government permission to protect us from short-term negative consequences of food. So if people go and eat at a diner and get sick because there's tainted lettuce, the local health authorities jump on it and try to do something. So these short-term consequences from foodborne illnesses are something we're accustomed to government dealing with. But it's only been recently that governments have been thinking about the long-term adverse health consequences of food. And trans fats would be an example of that. If you eat trans fats, you don't get sick immediately, but you might get some terrible disease many years down the road. So that's a big conceptual change. And if government continues to pay attention to the long-term consequences of food, then you have to begin thinking about things like salt in the diet, other types of fat would be an example, or things added to food like caffeine. And if government has staked out this area and says we belong in this space and that citizens want us to protect them from adverse consequences of these things in the food supply, then you could see a broader range of regulatory things happening down the road, potentially. You mentioned salt, caffeine, other sorts of fats. If you were able to choose it, what food ingredient would be your next target, and how would you go about regulating it? The answer to that will depend on what the science is at the moment, and the science continues to change. But right now, I would say that salt is probably the easiest victory because in America, we have so much salt in the foods that we've become accustomed to a high level of salt. In other countries, they use less salt and people seem to like their food at least as much. So it's probably quite possible to just gradually reduce the amount of salt in products so that people don't notice an abrupt change, but will ultimately like the food as much. And this could have quite beneficial health consequences. After salt, there are any number of things one might consider. Caffeine might be a very interesting thing to consider in this context because of the energy drinks and other things that have an awful lot of caffeine in them all of a sudden. There's really no benefit from the caffeine, and it would be easy to reduce the amount, probably without adverse effects to the industry. So that would be a very helpful thing potentially to do as well. Finally, what needs to happen on the state or local level, and what would be your vision if you were a health commissioner? There's a legal answer to that and then a health answer. The legal answer is that cities and states have some authority over these over the food supply, but the federal government has the most authority. And there will probably be legal fights about what states and cities can do. It would be nice to the extent that states and cities can take action because they tend to be less subject to political influence by the industry. And as we've seen with tobacco and a number of other things, the real innovation occurs at local levels and then state levels, and finally the federal government catches up. And that very same phenomenon could occur here, but it will depend partly on the authority that these local governments have. 
from a health point of view, you want a lot of people doing a lot of different things on this so that you find out what works the best and then you can create some federal law that would cover the whole country. Thank you, Dr. Brunel.